Well, this morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 27. It's been several weeks since we have uh, been in 1 Corinthians. We had a break uh, for a couple of guest speakers, and then I had the flu, and we had a special surprise guest uh, speaker one Sunday, and then we had the Easter Sunday. So it's been a, a full five weeks since we've been in 1 Corinthians. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to review, and you'll be able to remember some of what we covered uh, before that break. This morning, we are finishing up chapter 9, verses 19 to 27. The author of You Are What You Love, this is the book that our, some of our men are studying uh, by James Smith, he reimagines the first question of the shorter catechism for the consumerist. And he says, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief purpose of man? And he says, for the consumerist, it is to acquire stuff with the illusion that I can enjoy it forever. Now, no one, or at least very few people, would come right out and say that that is their chief end in life, that that's their purpose in life. But what we think is the truth about ourselves isn't always actually the truth. Sometimes we are deceived about who we are and what our purposes are. For instance, uh, take my ancestry as far as the Upchurches know, the first ancestor to come to America was Michael Upchurch. And if you go to Jamestown, the museum in Jamestown, you'll see a plaque of Michael Upchurch. And he's talking about how he prefers uh, the American corn over the English corn. I believe it's something like that. Um, and so I have English blood, I guess. And I've always thought on my mother's side that I had a fair amount of German blood. Uh, her maiden name is Holt. And they always associated that with a German-sounding name for some reason. And so we were interested in finding out the results of my mom's recent ancestral DNA testing. And what they found wasn't quite what we expected. It turns out the percentage of German ancestry was like 6%. It was less than 10%. And the great majority of her ancestry was Great Britain. Uh, so maybe I have a lot more English blood than I thought. Well, I wonder what would happen if we could do a DNA test on the actual practices and patterns of our lives. And I wonder what the results would show about the great purposes of our lives. Would we be surprised? Would we be shocked at what we found? Would we be proved wrong about what we think we're living for, about the purposes we think we are all about and living for? Well, it's worth considering, what are you living for? What is the purpose of your life? Your great purpose, the thing that shapes you, the thing that forms your behaviors, animates the pattern of your life. Well, in our passage for this morning, we see that Paul's great purpose, the thing which animated his own life, which shaped his behaviors, was this. That as many people as possible might get to share in the gifts God gives because of what Jesus has done for sinners. Let's look at our passage together. 1 Corinthians nine nineteen to 27 For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. 
To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Let us pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would now take your word and plant it deep in our hearts. Speak, O Lord, to us by your Spirit through your word, that we might hear and understand, that we might take your word to heart and believe your promises, that we might hear your commands and endeavor to keep them, that we might seek out of the gratitude of your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit to live for your glory. We pray that you would use your word to strengthen us, to shape us, to nourish us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So you remember in chapter 9, Paul has been defending his rights as an, as an apostle, his liberties as an apostle. But it's not something that he begrudges the Corinthians for. Rather, this is his reward. His reward is to preach the gospel without using his rights, to preach the gospel free of charge. So he continues this theme of giving up his rights through chapter 9. And in this passage, he shows what it looks like practically. He tells why he's doing it, and he tells how he's doing it. So he's talking about giving up his rights. He he shows what he does, which is the pattern or the strategy of his life the pattern of his life, why he does it, the purpose of his life, and how he does it, the program or manner of his life. Well, we want to start with the purpose of his life because the purpose forms everything. That's where everything begins is with the purpose of our life. So what is the purpose of Paul's life? Why does he do what he does? Why does he lay down his rights for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others? The purpose of Paul's life. Well, there's the general principle that he gives in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. So there he shows the what. He made himself a servant of all, and he shows the why. To win more of them. He uses three distinct yet related terms or ideas here. Notice those. First, he does it to win them. He does it to win people. He uses this term five times. And it's the idea of gaining someone for the kingdom of God. Why did Paul lay down his rights for the sake of others? Why did Paul do everything for the sake of God, the gospel? To win more people, to gain them into the kingdom of God. This is the word that's used in, in Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus is talking about going to a brother who has sinned. If someone sinned against you, you go to them and you, you share it with them. And if he repents, Jesus says, you have gained your brother. You have won him. Or also in 1 Peter 3.1 of uh, believing wives, bringing along their unbelieving husbands. 
It says to, to live with them in such a way that they may see your behavior and that they may be one without a word, that they may be one for the gospel, that they may be one to the kingdom of God. Paul does all of this for the sake of the gospel to win people. He also uses this term save. He wants to win them. He wants to save them. In verse 22 is where we see this. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. He's speaking of being rescued from sin and the punishment that our sin deserves. An eternity separated from God in hell. Being spiritually saved from sin. This is the greatest need that you or I have. This is the greatest need of every human being to be saved from their sin and from hell. Now you might read Paul's words and think, well, Paul, do you think you're the one doing the saving? That I might save some? Of course not. Paul isn't insisting that he's doing the saving. He's fully aware of the sovereignty uh, and grace of God in salvation. He's the one, after all, who wrote to the Ephesians, by grace you have been saved, by faith. And even this faith is not uh, of your own. It is a gift from God. So Paul knows that he's not doing the saving. However, he sees no problem in seeing himself as an instrument through whom the message is conveyed. He is the, the instrument by which God is saving sinners through the proclamation of the gospel. That God saves sinners through him. And it would be, I think, great if many more of us saw ourselves in this way. As instruments through whom God was willing to save people. As we faithfully speak the gospel message, as we faithfully speak of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sins, who rose from the dead, who ascended into heaven, as we share that with people around us who don't know Jesus, that we would see ourselves as instruments, that we even might be able to say with Paul, I do everything for the sake of the gospel so that I might save some people. Not not that we're doing the saving, but that God is doing the saving through us. Oh, that we would see ourselves as instruments through which God would save sinners. In fact, Paul, at least according to Paul, it seems that he believes if he had demanded his rights and liberties, so if he had done counter to what he had been doing, then fewer people would have been one. See, this is the mystery of God's sovereignty and of our own responsibilities and choices is that our actions matter. The things that we do matter, and the things that we don't do matter. And therefore, if we choose to demand our rights and our liberties, if we choose to live for certain purposes, then it potentially means that fewer people will be saved. Paul says that this is why he is laying down his rights for the sake of the gospel, so that more might be saved. The third term he uses is to, to allow them to share in the blessings of the gospel. And him too. To allow them to share in the blessings of the gospel. Verse 23, he does it all for the sake of the gospel that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. In Romans Chapter 11, verse 17, Paul is talking about how 
the Gentile branches have been grafted onto Christ. That He is the root and that the Gentiles have been welcomed into the kingdom of God, welcomed into the family of God. He says they now share in the nourishing root. It's this idea of being attached to the source. Come thou fount of every blessing. The only way you can receive blessings is is if you are connected to the fountain, if you are connected to the root. He says, the Gentile branches grafted on now share in the nourishing root or in the root of richness, which is Christ. He is the vine and we are the branches. So Paul's endeavor is that as many as possible might be grafted onto Christ and therefore receive all the gifts of God's grace. Well, what are these blessings, these gifts of which Paul is speaking that he wants people to share in, that he wants to share in himself? Brothers and sisters who are in Christ, consider these blessings. First, there's union with Christ. We are unified. We, are, uh, we commune with Christ. We are connected to Christ through faith. And from that comes justification. We are justified before Him. God looks upon those who have placed their faith in Jesus and declared you righteous in His sight. As though you had never sinned and as if you had kept every word of God's law. You have forgiveness in Christ. These blessings flow from Him. You have reconciliation with God. You once were estranged from God a rebel, a sinner, an enemy of God. And yet by the death of Jesus' cross, taking your punishment, your sin, God has brought you near to Himself through Christ. You have adoption into His family. For God saw it fit not merely to make us servants forgiven in His everlasting kingdom. He has chosen to make us sons and daughters. And He Himself has become our Father. You have a church family, brothers and sisters who are connected through and in Christ. You are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, made new day by day. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. Brothers and sisters, you will partake in the resurrection from the dead. It is promised to you glorification and life everlasting. These are the blessings which Paul wants to share in. And he wants as many as possible to share in these blessings with him. One is either cut off from all these blessings, or one receives them through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. They are found nowhere else, brothers and sisters, only in Christ and in His work for sinners. Someone who throws a party for the big game is excited for his friends to share in the blessings that he has received. Food and drink, a new big screen HD TV with surround sound, brand new leather recliners, enough of everything for everyone to enjoy. Isn't it fun to throw a party and have everyone enjoy the blessings which you've received? And if it moves us and animates us to share the blessings of this life with our friends, how much more thrilled ought we to be to share the blessings of heaven? With others. So we have to ask ourselves in that regard do we think so little of the blessings of the gospel? 
Or is it that we think so little of our friends that they might share in those blessings with us? See, we might approach this and see Paul's life and think, wow, this is something that I really need to squeeze into my life somewhere. But think about things you squeeze into your life. A lunch with someone you don't particularly care for. A dentist appointment. A hard workout. These are necessary evils, right? Things you don't, uh, things you don't really care for, but you know you need to do these things. You just kind of squeeze them in. But this is not something we squeeze into our lives. This is something that ought to shape our lives. Ought to form our lives. Ought to give motivation for our lives. These are not necessary evils. Laying down our rights, our liberties for the sake of the gospel is a part of who we are as Christians. Because Christ Himself, our Savior, this is what characterized His life. He gave His life so that we, His elect, might be saved. Life is too short to put our priorities on lesser things. Life is too short to be preoccupied with ourselves. So Paul spent his life for this great purpose, and it led him to behave in certain ways. So we move now from the why to the what. What did this look like? What did he do? We saw his purpose, why he did it, for the sake of the gospel that as many people as possible might be saved. But notice the pattern of Paul's life. Again, there's that summary or general uh, principle in verse 19. Though free, I've made myself a servant of all. And in verse 22, he has become all things to all people. He subjugated himself and his personal desires to the pursuit of winning others. If anything was going to cause offense, he was convinced it must be the gospel alone and nothing in and of himself. So look at the particular situations that Paul talks about. To the Jews, he became a Jew. To those under the law, he became as one under the law. That's verse 20. It's really referencing uh, the same sort of person, the Jew, the one who is under the law. Though he himself was not under the law technically, meaning he was not under the Jewish civil laws and customs, the ceremonial laws. But he placed himself as though he were under them, so as not to bring offense to the Jews. To those outside the law, he became as one outside the law. Though he makes clear he's not outside the law of God, he is under the law of Christ. He is not living in sin. He is not adjusting himself to participate in the sin of those who are outside the law. And yet he feels free to lay down the Jewish customs and laws in situations where it would be conducive to sharing the gospel, to not bringing an offense to the weak. He became weak. In our context, remember he's been talking about those who are eating meat sacrificed to idols. And he says, if it causes my brother or sister to stumble, I will never eat meat again. An amazing statement. He became as though he were weak for the sake of the weak. Note the twin dangers that Paul talks about here. To come under the law as a Jew as though he must do the law in order to be saved would be to harm the gospel of free grace. And yet to be outside of God's law, to participate in the sin of those who are outside of God's law 
would be to harm the gospel change that takes place, the lordship of Christ. Paul wanted to walk this middle way so that he would not bring any harm to the gospel. He didn't want to distort the gospel or damage the gospel in any way. So notice some principles concerning Paul's life, some principles regarding becoming all things to all people. How do we do this? Well, first, the gospel is the guiding principle. Right? This is why we're doing it. This is why Paul was becoming all things to all people for the sake of the gospel. The gospel must guide us here. What will keep the gospel message pure? If any action that we take in trying to become all things to all people distorts the gospel message of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners and risen from the dead as Lord over all, then we, we cannot, we're making a mistake somewhere. The gospel is the guiding principle. Second, it applies to matters indifferent. Uh, in other words, it, becomes, it applies to matters which don't include sin. It doesn't allow or uh, excuse sin. And so we can't kind of say, well, I'm trying to minister to these people, so I will take part in these sins that they are doing as well. We cannot use that as an excuse for licentiousness. We are still under the lordship of Christ. We are under the law of Christ. So it applies to matters indifferent, not areas of sin. Also, another principle, the core of this pattern is not mere imitation for the sake of flattery. We might read Paul's words and be thinking, well, he's just, uh, he's just blending in like a chameleon and he's, uh, he's kind of flattering people so that they'll like him and then he can share the gospel with them. That's not the principle behind Paul's action. Rather, respect and dignity and sensitivity are the principles behind what he's doing. Because if you really think about it, crass imitation could do more harm than good. So if I'm trying to minister to, uh, <clears throat> say, some cowboys, and so I put on some cowboy boots and a cowboy hat, not my style at all, it doesn't fit in, and I try to talk in a, a Western slang, I'm going to bring harm to the gospel. I'm going to bring offense to them in and of myself in trying to be like them. Crass imitation will do more harm than good. Rather, treating others with respect and dignity and sensitivity, being who I am, authenticity, and yet recognizing that they are made in the image of God, and that they are in need of a Savior. The pattern is becoming a servant. It's becoming a servant. Whoever would be great among you, Jesus says, must be the servant of all. We must deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow Jesus. And this is not easy, what Paul is describing here, becoming all things to all people. Think about some of the things that you enjoy most in life. It might mean laying down some of those enjoyments for the sake of the gospel. This is what Paul's talking about. Laying things down that he had rights to, liberties, Laying these down so that he might have a better opportunity to share the gospel with others. This was the pattern of Paul's life, and it must be our pattern as well. But finally, notice the program of Paul's life, the manner of Paul's life, how he went about doing it. Paul wants to make sure he doesn't miss out on any of the blessings of the gospel. You see that? Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel 
that I may share with them in its blessings. And then in verse 27, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The truth of Paul's words here is that apostasy is real. Those who once professed faith in Christ turn away from him sometimes. You know, Paul speaks in one of his letters about recounting with tears those who once professed faith in Jesus and now walk as enemies of the cross. Think about people that you know who have turned away from the gospel. They once professed faith in Christ. They once seemed to love Jesus so much and now they have thrown it all away. We, we ought to be driven more to tears than we are about those who now walk as enemies of the gospel. We can learn from Paul in this. Paul's passion for those people to know Christ. He recounts them with tears. And Paul doesn't want to be one of those. He wants to share in the blessings. He doesn't want to be disqualified after all of this work that by any means possible, all more and more might be saved. He doesn't want to be disqualified. We ought to take note of this in our own lives as well. The the reality of apostasy. This is why Paul tells Timothy to keep a close watch over his life and doctrine. Keep a close watch. This is why we, we... Uh, become members of a church because we not only want to keep a close watch over our life and doctrine we want others to be looking in on our lives on our doctrine to make sure we are walking in the path of the gospel why because we don't want to lose it we don't want to be disqualified we want to share in the blessings of the gospel So what does Paul do to maximize those being saved without becoming disqualified himself He uses athletic illustrations to show us his manner of life. This must be our pattern of life as well. This must be our manner of life as well. He uses athletic illustrations probably because the Isthmian Games were uh, a huge event every other year in Corinth, much like the Olympic Games. There would be much celebration. There would be parties. There would be uh, much joy as everyone watched the games, the different uh, athletes compete. And so he uses these illustrations to show his pattern of life. Run to win the prize. Run to win the prize. It takes determination. It takes hustle. It takes doing your best. And really, isn't it hard to manufacture this? This determination, this Willingness to run with all that you've got in order to win the prize. It it comes from deep within. And I saw some of it come up when we played soccer together several weeks ago. Right? There was was competition. Uh, Kelly threw, uh, kind of checked someone in the wall trying to get the ball. We we were eager. We We were striving. We wanted to be the team that won. And Paul says this is how we must run this race of the Christian life. Run with zeal with passion, with determination in order to win this race. 
train with self-control. This takes self-denial and sacrifice. Focus on the course and on the finish. It doesn't matter how fast you run if you're running in the wrong direction. If you're running off the course. It doesn't matter how hard you swing if you miss your target. Paul says he runs in such a way to win. He exercises self-control. He doesn't run aimlessly off the course. He keeps his eyes focused on the course. His eyes focused on the path. His eyes focused on the prize. He doesn't box as one beating in the air. Rather, he trains himself in self-control. This is how Olympians train, right? He's using these illustrations. Think about how an Olympian trains. The Olympics come every four years, and they make great sacrifices in order to compete. They train for years on end. They go without uh, certain foods, They eat a healthy diet. They train for many hours each day. They don't practice self-control and self-denial just for the fun of it. It's no fun much of the time. A greater goal lies before them though, right? Olympians are going for the gold. And so you think about some of these gold medal winners from the U.S. You might think of, of Gabby Douglas who won the gold a few years ago. Or maybe uh, your mind turns to Mary Lou Retton, who won in seemingly a miraculous way, winning the gold. And we think about them leaning down to have the medal placed around their necks. And we think about the tears in their eyes as the national anthem is playing as they stand on the podium. And we are so proud to be Americans at that time. This is what they worked for. This is what they sacrificed for days and days and weeks and months and years. They endured the temporary pain for the greater gain of this moment. This was, this was worth it. This is what they strove for. Well, how much more, brothers and sisters, ought we to strive? How much more worth it is for us to gain an imperishable crown, Paul says. They do it all for the gold. They do it all for this this thing, this object, which will be gone one day. It will decay. Their names will be forgotten throughout history. And yet Paul says, how much more, brothers and sisters, ought we to strive to run for the prize because it is an imperishable crown? How much more for a reward that never fades in a kingdom that never ends with a song of praise that echoes throughout eternity. Can you imagine the scene, brothers and sisters? It will be worth it for any temporary pain that you suffer, for anything you lay down, for any enjoyment or liberty that you lay down. It will be worth it on that day when Jesus Christ returns. The anthem of the kingdom will play. As we stand before God, And as he gives us an imperishable crown, as he gives us the blessings of the kingdom of God. And what will the anthem be when we are standing before the throne? 
It won't be a national anthem. It will be the anthem of the kingdom. I imagine maybe great is thy faithfulness, singing the faithfulness of God throughout eternity. Or maybe, maybe amazing grace, singing of the grace of God throughout all eternity. But probably more likely it will be something maybe from Revelation 5. As we're standing around his throne, And the anthem which plays as we receive our reward and then cast them back at his feet is worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the lamb. We will sing of the worthiness of of the lamb for all eternity, brothers and sisters. And I guarantee you it will be worth it. Let's pursue the prize. Let's lay down our liberties for the sake of others, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for those who don't know Christ. Let's be passionate that we might win as many as possible for the sake of the gospel, because it will be worth it. Let us pray together.